Dior Talks. Hello, I'm Justine Picardy, and I'm here to welcome you to the third episode of Mes Cheries, the podcast series about the women of Christian Dior. This was recorded last year at the V&A Museum in London when I was talking to Oriel Cullen, who curated the wonderful exhibition Dior, Designer of Dreams. At the time, I was editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, and in this episode, we talk about two very significant women in Dior's life. Firstly, Suzanne Luleng, Christian's friend since his childhood in Granville in Normandy, and a woman who formed the vital link between the creative and commercial sides of the business. Secondly, the mysterious Madame Delahaye, a tarot card reader and psychic who Dior relied on whenever it came to making the most important decisions in his life. The interesting thing about those three women is, you know, Dior was a lovely, mild-mannered person and everyone who worked with him said how lovely he was. But the three women who sort of were the gatekeepers absolutely hated each other. <laughs> so this is... <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think, uh, so in a way, you know, if anything went wrong or temper sprayed, there was always someone else to blame and he, <laughs> he rose above it. Yeah. Um, so, but the interesting thing also is, of course, when he very sadly dies very suddenly at the age of 52, um, you know, there is real panic because no one knows if the company will continue. What's so extraordinary mm-hmm. is it in that decade of having launched this company, it became the most famous and successful brand globally. And it was responsible for a very high percentage of... The, of the French economy. It wasn't just that it was, you know, 70% of, of the French fashion industry. It, it represented a huge amount of French exports. By this point, he had, a, a, what, 1,000, 2,000 people working for him. Yeah. And he'd expanded this empire around the world. Again, which you can see in the exhibition, you know, to Latin America, to... Japan. To Japan. Australia. So a lot of people, you know, have need Dior to continue. But what do you do with or without Christian Dior? Well, what you have is his young assistant, the young Yves Saint Laurent. But what you have is the continuity and the brilliance of these three key women who can take the 21-year-old Yves Saint Laurent and, you know, allow the house to continue around him. Mm-hmm. And there they are, Raymond, Marguerite and Raymond with, with Saint Laurent. So another person who was very important was Suzanne Luling, and she was a friend of Dior's from his childhood days in Granville. Yes. Um, and head of sales, essentially. And um, PR as well. Yes, yeah. And she's a really interesting character. So Dior was incredibly loyal to his friends from Granville, and he trusted people that were from Normandy. So Jacques, the one man on the stairs, um, was also from Normandy. And Serge Heffler-Louise. Who set up Dior perfumes. And Suzanne, you know, there's a kind of 
look of stability. I mean, I, I, she looks like a good Norman, doesn't she? And um, she's from good Norman stock. And, you know, in his great hour of need, which is when Catherine has been deported from Paris and is on this train heading towards Germany, the person that Christian turned to was Suzanne, thinking that if anybody could help in this crisis, it would be her. And she did everything possible she could through diplomatic channels. She nearly succeeded, but didn't. But the fact is, in a crisis, it was Suzanne that Dior would turn to. And I think Natasha Fraser says in her wonderful book on Dior that she's really the link between commerce and creativity. Yes. Has. I think Jacques Benita also said that she kept a bottle of wine under her chair. So. <laughs> and she gave amazing parties. So, you know, when there were journalists to be entertained or, you know, very important people from the big department stores in America, it would be Suzanne who knew how to... And also by this, you know, the interesting thing is the way that Christian Dior is described by, for example, mm -hmm. Cecil Beaton. Um, he's described as if he's this very sort of quiet dose style, you know, kind of country curate, whereas in fact, he became more and more highly strung mm -hmm. as his success developed, mm -hmm. partly because there was enormous responsibility, you know, with success becomes the fear of, becomes the fear of failure, but with success also comes this sense of responsibility and fashion is so cruel you know fashion eats its young so he's become so famous he becomes more and more anxious more and more nervous and Suzanne is this sort of stabilizing influence and when he is too anxious really to do mm -hmm. anything Suzanne is the one that keeps the kind of party mm -hmm. running she entertains people she she plays cards mm -hmm. Um, and she's the hostess with the mostess. <laughs> she was also seen as acceptable in a way that Mitzah wasn't yes, to polite society. Had, yeah, good connections. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So along with Suzanne, he also relied on, as we mentioned, Madame de la Haye, the clairvoyant. So now this is such an important picture. And when I was looking at the pictures um, in the exhibition and then with Aurel earlier, I got very excited that you were going to set see this picture. Madame de la Haye is a really fascinating and mysterious character who was a clairvoyant. Um, I think it's really interesting that when you look at the history of fashion, that you need a good business head. You need to understand profit and loss. But there is an element of magical thinking that often goes with every great fashion designer, whether it's Coco Chanel or Cristobal Balenciaga, who also relied on, on you know, tarot cards. Chanel was incredibly reliant on, on tarot cards. But Madame de la Haye, Dior turned to over and over again, and even before Madame de la Haye. So as a child, he saw a fortune teller mm -hmm. in um, Normandy, in Granville, who told him that, you know, he would become very famous and he would make a great fortune based on women. <laughs> and thus it came to pass. But he, he could not make a decision without this mm -hmm. woman. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, there's a wonderful 1950s American interview with him. It's his only interview in English where he sort of admits to being very superstitious. And then out of his pocket, he takes a chunk of, of Lucky Charms and he's like, oh, this is a piece of wood. So I always have wood to touch wood. So he always has to have wood to touch. And yeah. then his, his Lucky Star. And his Yeah, so his Lucky Star, which we're delighted is in the exhibition downstairs. When he was in negotiations in 1946 with Marcel Boussac, his backer, he he sort of got cold feet and he didn't really know whether he should go ahead with his own house or not and he tripped over this old metal star on the street which apparently came from the sort of axle of a cartwheel um, and he saw this suddenly as a sign um, and so he, he sort of picked up this star and it hung in the atelier ever after um, and he had replicas made in gold for um, loyal service from his employees. Um, and so still today, you know, if you buy and get your, you know, beautiful package from Dior, there is the lucky star attached. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that magical thinking, you know, as I said, it goes all the way back Mm -hmm. to his childhood. But again, you know, he saw... He saw omens in everything. So um, he describes when the mirror fell in the house, in the family home, Mm -hmm. and he saw that as an omen of the terrible disasters that would literally befall his family, the house of of Dior, that his his father lost his money in the Wall Street crash, his brother became ill, his mother died. Mm -hmm. And it was all, as it were, foreseen in this mirror that falls to the floor and smashes into smithereens. I wish I knew more about Madame Delahaye. She did one interview, I think, but didn't give very much away. We don't even know her first name. No, she... and. Interestingly, she was the one who said, don't go to Monte Catina and nothing good will come of it. And that's sadly where Dior died. Um, It was the place in Italy that he went to with his boyfriend and it was a spa in Italy and he Mm -hmm. was going to go and, and, you know, lose weight because he was constantly... um, Anxious about the way he looked. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he didn't look glamorous. Um, and he loved food, rich food. Um, and, and what's so interesting, when I think about the return to luxury mm. in post-war France, that Dior represents the return to luxury with the launch of, of Dior. It's, it's not just the couture, it's the beautiful perfume as well. That he you know, almost gorged himself mm. on on luxury, on mm-hmm. because they'd all been starving during the occupation. Everything had been in such limited supply. Mm-hmm. So he goes to lose weight um, in Italy. His clairvoyant says, don't go. Nothing good will come of it. He goes. There is mm-hmm. a story that he eats a lot of very rich food on the way. Mm-hmm. He arrives in Italy and has a heart attack and dies. Mm. 